Hello and welcome to episode 82 of the Bulak podcast. I'm Ursula Lindsay in Amman, and with me, as usual, is my friend and colleague, Marsha Links-Qualey in Rabat. Hello, Ursula. Hi. Um, and today we're going to be talking about two books that are both from Egypt and both in some way about migration. Um, certainly... One is very much about the experience of migration, and the other one is about that experience among others. Um, so these are the book, The Men Who Swallowed the Sun by Hamdi Abu Golayel. Uh, this is out from Hupu, uh, the imprint of AUC Press, and translated by Humphrey Davies. And um, the other book that we'll hopefully get to also is Slipping by Mohammed Khair. This is out from Two Lines Press and translated by Robin Mojer. Um, but we'll start with The Men Who Swallowed the Sun, um, which I was interested to read because I actually know Hamdi Abu Ghalayl from quite a while back and um, was an admirer of a book of his that won uh, the Nagib Mahfouz Award from AOC Press, I think already like a decade ago, probably. Right, um, which he references in this book, <laughs> in one of the sort of wonderful oral asides that he makes. Right. So, and and um, th that book and this book are sort of have a lot of autobiographical elements to them. So, although I think they should, they are fiction, they are sort of, based on the author's experiences. Um, and this this earlier book uh, was called in, uh, in Arabic, El Fa'al, uh, right. which just means, I think, the workman, the one who does. Right. Uh, because he worked for a long time in construction in Cairo when he first emigrated to Cairo. Uh, and so they were these they were short stories kind of about the experiences that he'd had living on the periphery of the city and and doing this manual work all around the city and I was very struck with that collection I remember um, and actually then was was very interested at that time in like um, informal neighborhoods in Cairo mm. was doing um I I mean eventually I wrote my master's thesis on um, the portrayal in literature of, of of the modern capital city of Cairo, including the sort of margins and the ashwayet, the informal neighborhoods. So I sort of sought him out and and wrote about that and visited one of the neighborhoods that he had featured in that book, which which was a completely informal sort of quote unquote slum neighborhood uh, on the outskirts of Cairo. So. Yeah, so then I was... Yeah, and interest, interestingly, so that was also published by Hoopo, which was then AUC Press, and the title was changed. And this book that we're talking about today was uh, was called Qiyemwe and Hiyar Saad Sheen, The Rise and Fall of the Saad Sheen, which I understand why they wouldn't want to have Saad Sheen, Al-Sahra Al-Sharqiyya, the name of this, this group that... Um, that is sort of followed through the novel as, as the title, but I really like actually <laughs> the original title um, as well. I find it really evocative of, of the sort of historical nature of the project. Right. So I sort of said, yes, El Fel was translated as a dog with no tail, T-A-L-E. Mm. And I liked the Arabic title better. Um, and like you said, uh, here again, the title was changed, and his original title 
the Saad Sheen, so these are two letters of the Arabic alphabet, is is the way he refers throughout to this Bedouin community that lives on the border, across the border between Libya and Egypt, and that he belongs to. Um, yes, and it, so I I had to do a little bit of reading up about the Saad Sheen because I didn't know this uh, that there was a name the Al Sahara Shaqiya the 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 people of the Eastern Desert, um, and uh, according to so <laughs> there's um, an interesting academic article that we can link to called The Practice and Culture of Smuggling in the Borderland of Egypt and Lib- Libya by a man named Thomas Huskin, who says that he sort of um, did 20-some, a couple dozen interviews with with people he says are, you know, s- some of them see themselves as smugglers and some as traders who don't deal in customs, but in any case, live in this, this um, transnational community. Um, and so he lived among smugglers and and based his article on on uh, his academic article and interviews with them and he says that um the Saad Sheen um title is is a pejorative um and and that many of the people who are called Saad Sheen reject it as he says dishonorable and discriminatory so i i, I I guess after reading that, I sort of re-saw the novel as sort of reclaiming this <laughs> Saad Sheen title, you know, in, an, in a semi-ironic way, you know, in a way of, um, you know, I, I think the whole, to me, the whole novel is built very much on, in the same structure as something like the Epic of Bani Halal, these old, um, Arabic epics that were told by uh, in in coffee houses and elsewhere that were orally told and retold and of course also written down in in different forms, um, but that that begin you know that that uh, begin with the story maybe of a great person and l- like uh, Zata Hemma and and others that begin with the story of a great person, uh, a hero's birth, and then we see you know um, y- you know their raids and how you know how they struggle um, you know either to sort of unite different tribes or for the supremacy of their tribe and. To me, this is very much a sort of a contemporary remaking of that kind of epic. Um, however, it, it instead of you know you going to raid other people's camels, you are um, selling drugs and um, you know and smuggling and traveling across borders. Uh, you know, there's one point where he says, "Think of his thefts," and and this is. Um, the sort of narrator, the Hamdi Abu Ghalil character, talking about the Phantom Raider, who I think is, um, you know, sort of the anti-hero or hero of the narrative. Think of his thefts as no more than youthful devilry, a phase usually undergone by those whose forefathers' glorious poetry praised their dashing exploits on horseback, plundering or robbing at knife point. So, so to me, this is, uh, you know, although it begins instead of with the Phantom Raver, with the, the story of Gaddafi's, um, Gaddafi's birth, actually, but, um, but I don't think Gaddafi is actually the hero of this particular epic, <laughs> although he figures quite a lot. Right. Well, he's the patron of this particular um, 
like movement, right? Because because right. Hamdi Abugayal explains that that um, Gaddafi gave automatic Libyan citizenship to all the members of this of this of, of a couple, I think, Bedouin tribes that lived there on the border, including the one that he belongs to, um, and so that meant that a lot of Egyptians migrated to Libya and availed themselves um, of this automatic right to like go and work and live there. Um, and that's what he narrates, like you said, in this kind of uh, very ironic, modern take on the epic. <laughs> right, um, right. I mean, yeah, where the where where rather than really heroic activities i mean it's a story about men testing themselves in one way or another sort of uh but but the the endeavors that they get into are overwhelmingly criminal and like pretty squalid um kind of funny sometimes uh and but it is driven actually by i think that's where you find maybe the little elements of emotional sadness or depth to the story too, is that it is driven by a desire to like prove yourself, give your life some sort of meaning, um, be someone, right? Right. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. It, in the, in the sort of origin stories, I think of, um, of both Hamdi you know, the Bugulayel's his own uh, origin as as migrating to Libya, and as well as the Phantom Raider, who has many names, who migrates both to Libya and then later to Italy. Um, now I lost my train of thought. I'm so sorry. <laughs> well, wait, yeah. So this is a confusing part of the book, though. So the book sort of begins in this kind of burst of narrative energy and momentum, which it actually sustains throughout, right? So it kind right. of throws out at you like the history of the Bedouin tribes in Egypt, you know, the history of Gaddafi, like it's sort of setting the stage for eventually it'll get to our narrator and why he went to Libya in the 70s to this like crazy wild west Libyan town. Um, and then eventually it settles into an alternation between the narrator, which seems to be a double of the author. I mean, he has the author's name and his account of being in Libya. And this story, which is also told in the first person, but is seemingly a, a different character. And it, you, as you mentioned, the Phantom Raider, and he has many other nicknames and, and aliases, who crosses the Mediterranean and becomes a drug dealer in Milan, right? So you have right. those two alternating narrative threads, which... At first, I've honestly found hard to tell apart. I thought it was all one character, um, but I think you're right that there, it's one character telling his own story and someone else's story. Right. Yeah. And and he does it in very much an oral style. You know, in this kind of um, um, as if he's in a coffee shop and he, telling this to us, the listeners. And I did enjoy how sometimes he would throw in these absolute non sequiturs. Like he, he, he says at one point, he suddenly throws in about Ibrahim Akuni, who is a Libyan author who's lived in Switzerland for, I don't know, 30 years now or something. And who, but who continues to write about, about Libya and, um, and, and the Tuareg people, uh, living in the, in, uh, 
living in the desert. And, and he, he even says something like, I'm not even going to apologize for saying, for saying here for no particular reason that Ibrahim Akoni is lost. You know, he, he's, he's writing about imaginary Libyans and imaginary camels. It's just, um, you feel, uh, I felt at some points that Hamdi was there speaking this story to me. And I, I found that those little, um, authorly asides wonderful and funny. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has the quality I think we both enjoy, which is like a, a very strong voice. Mm. Um, and uh, just to give a very sh- uh, a short sense of what this voice is, like, for example, so he, he goes and he picks this town, Sabha, which I'd never heard of, but apparently it's um, ruled mostly by Gaddafi's family at that time. And this is how he describes it, partly. He says, Sabha pollulated with the vermin of nations, mm. pollulated with the vermin of Africa, Arab Africa and African Africa and mixed up Africa. The people from the bottom of the heap were there, right there at the bottom of the heap. Even the rulers were from the bottom of the heap, relations of the leader and commander, but not part of the stable elite that surrounded him in Sirte. Most of them little no-account Bedouin from Egypt, Tunisia, Chad, and Niger, and making themselves out to be Libyan. The quintessence of the people the leader himself manufactured for himself and as his personal property. And then he says, applying my philosophy of always taking the seat at the back of the class, I crossed the whole of Libya and came to a stop in Sabha. Then I left the rest of Sabha behind and settled down among its most dangerous criminals. And, you know, he just, then he goes on to like describe, you know, this, this, he's, 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 he's bootlegging, he's living in a brothel. He's, he's supposedly this kind of like innocent in the midst of all these like hardened criminals. Um, and, and you get the tone, like it's the opposite of romantic and heroic. Um, right. Yeah. He calls himself a naive soul in a pack of rogues, although he doesn't seem naive at any point, but he does, he does a, like a fantastic job of mocking himself of saying, you know, he never, like he never realized that the shaft was going in into him until it was all the way in. Right. And no, I mean, he seems, it's really as the story of a survivor, like an all out survivor who always like manages um, but also, I suppose it's a story, I mean, by his own definition of a fuck up, like he also <laughs> right. never, he also never kind of both of the stories, right? I mean, they leave home to become millionaires to achieve this kind of right. like d- dreamt of success to come home, like as the big shot, uh, right, to live in a and, villa. Yeah. A huge, huge uh, um, imagination of what it's going to be like, um, and even though, yeah, the Phantom Raider, he gets to Italy, uh, and he does like make huge amounts of money. He also loses huge amounts of money very shortly afterwards. <laughs> yeah, I mean the stories, the the stories of the Ita- the the drug trade that is engaged. So it's it's all you know migrants from all over uh north africa and eastern europe uh in milan uh running these these various drug operations and in and out of prison and i mean 
there's a level of violence throughout that is really shocking. I mean, and fascinating. Of course, it, it creates a lot of the drama of the story. Uh, but from the beginning in the Libyan town, there's just so much male posturing and kind of endless, pointless, uh, you know, threatening and beating and extortion and like as if they can't think of anything else to do or any other way to prove themselves, you know? And just, I mean, the two, between the two narrators, they must have like 50 near-death experiences throughout the book. <laughs> Right. Right. But I think, you know, in part, that's the that's the epic of your, you know, you're you are you're proving yourself with your dashing exploits on on horseback or camelback. Um, but one of the things that I you mentioned that there are all these, you know, there's the I don't know, there's the Armenians and there's the Romanians and there are all these these groups, particularly in Italy, who are part of this uh, this underclass or or this, um, you know, in, and well, they're, all, they're all there illegally and they're right. all engaging in illegal activity and they're all kind right of, but so know. if you met if i imagine this is the rise and fall of the sajin as a kind of a, a history it's like this wonderful not it's not an e egyptian history you know it's not like a national history it's all a history um of all these uh you know that sort of belies sovereignty territorially territory, whatever that word is, <laughs> citizenship, um, you know, that, that uh, a portrait of sort of a transnational history that works against borders and boundaries and official papers and laws, um, and certainly against laws all the time. Yeah. No, it's very cosmopolitan. I mean, cosmopolitanism doesn't have to be an upper class thing. It's an extremely right. like in international like mixed book. The other thing that I think is sort of, you know, rings true. Of course, you read a book like this, you have, you have no familiarity. I mean, I don't with this kind of experience. All you can experience is whether it feels true or not. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it does. It has this voice and it really like has this texture kind of right of, of, of someone's experience, of course, like filtered through a sensibility. But the other thing is there's all, he talks a lot about all these different communities and he interacts with and goes into business and has relationships with people, you know, from different countries. But he also engages in like a lot of kind of like classification, you know, of the different right. groups. Yes, like, yes. Like, you know, don't mess with the, I don't know, Algerians. Like, they're the really tough ones that won't let you mug them. And like, you know, the, or these are the, I mean, it's a lot of classification and who's toughest. Right. But again, that feels like the way that men in this world having these experiences would sort of classify each other. Um, right. So they're sort of crossing those lines all the time, but they're also like redrawing those lines all the time. Uh, and, right, and but redrawing them not in the way that they're drawn by states, I think, but redrawing them in sort of, yeah, these um, local communities that may be held together by ethnicity or religion or um, or whatever they're held together by. But yes, uh, by relationships, usually, um, in, in this kind of like um, epic sense of, you know, who who's related to who. 
Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of negotiation. I mean, there's acts of kindness and acts of loyalty, and then like recurrent acts of betrayal. I mean, there's there's sort of both of all of that, right? <laughs> right. Um, but um, and it is overwhelmingly a male universe. I mean, women mm-hmm. feature very scantily. Uh, and are often, know. yeah, often in the act of being taken advantage of. Although not always, there's a, a uh, there's a Ghanaian woman who shows up, and um, I think it's the the Hamdi Abu Ghalil, uh, the narrate, you know, the the primary narrator asks her, "What is she doing here?" He looks at her as a fallen woman. You know, this is he's got some sort of, you know, right. thing that he mocks of, you know. M- morale, you know, old fashioned morality that he's brought with him. And she says, you know, I, I'm here to work just like you, you know, she manages in a sort of a perfect, uh, or an imperfect rather Arabic, um, in, in a, so, you know, in a very scornful way. So the women, um, appear rarely and often just as, you know, saggy breasts being squeezed. Well, I think they do sex workers, right? I mean, yes. that's usually that's a sex the predominant workers. experience that they have of them. And then there's some girlfriends in Italy, basically. Right. Although, yeah, the girlfriends also also tend to sort of run in the in the same circle of, mm. uh, you know, drug dealing and if not sex work, sort of demi sex work or peri sex work or whatever you would call it. I mean, it's not a, I just not, it's not something I automatically criticize this dearth of, I, I mm. think it's in the story that he's telling, I think he's trying to be, tr- you know, he's trying to represent and be true to like a certain experience. And in that experience, I think that's how the, that's how women are. He's not, women are important in the sense that they're, they're a motivating pleasure in life it seems like to the narrator but there's not a lot of time spent really on thinking about them or describing their character their feelings there's much more about the relationships with the other men that you're in business with and doing things with and hanging out with uh then then there is there's like no there's no female character with uh with 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 any interiority really but what I'm saying is I think that's might be a conscious choice. Like he's presenting a certain universe and it's absolutely an overwhelmingly absolutely. macho male one. Right. Right. And, and the sex work is not just um, the sex work of women. There's also sex work available to men, but it, it's portrayed through, I think this um, phantom Raider character in this extremely macho way, like uh, um you know, like you can be a sex worker as a man, but you know, there's like some humiliation to being on the bottom of, uh, if you're a sex worker working, you know, men with men. Um, although he, you know, the phantom raider at one point sort of, uh, you know, pulls back his shoulders and say, you know, I don't care what you do with your own body, you know, as if he's right. uh, suddenly progressive. <laughs> Right. Well, the, the, the morality of this world is sort of not, not obvious. Right. There are codes of conduct, but, and the narr and because the narrator himself is so kind of like sardonic and like self-deprecating and sort of, it's hard, you know, he, he's not giving you like an earnest account of, uh, 
his, you know, values or principles or whatever, you know, you know what I mean? Like you have to kind of right, experience right, the whole thing to see, he's not talking to you about his feelings particularly. I mean, there's very few moments in which, uh, you get even the, even male interiority, right? Like it's, it's right. It's not, it's not book. a novel about interiority. It's an, I, I think in, in the same way that an epic is not about interiority, it's about the movement and about the battle and about, um, yeah, proving it's yourself action. and finding, right. It's action. Uh, oh, it's okay. action, but it's also so much humor. <laughs> but that's I the thing is really I would fun. use the word picaresque about this book more than like epic. I mean, I don't think it has the tone of an epic at all, right? Like, I don't think it has, I think it's kind of an anti-epic. Like it's purposely, I mean, it's maybe right, but I think on it that draws, tradition. Right. I think it draws from the, from the local tradition of, of the epic, but yes, in a sort of a picaresque mode in, in, in this sort of ironic tone that it's told in. And it, 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 to me, so it, um, I, it made me think about this book that I'd also really liked called African Titanics by an Eritrean novelist, Abu Bakr Khal, uh, that came out maybe in, um, in Arabic in 2008. And I don't remember when it came out in English in Charles Breden's uh, translation. But it follows um, a man named Abdar, who's an Eritrean, and he first goes to Sudan and then, um, and then crosses the Libyan desert. And, and this book it is also, I, I highly recommend it, but it's so it's very different. It's very like personal and individual. It is about the portraits of these people that, that he meets along this pathway. And it all is also, you know, sort of not autobiographical. Um, um, the author himself lived for 20 years in Tripoli and he, he had to leave only in 2011. He's, you know, one of the, you know, many, um, Africans who came from from across the continent and ended up in in Libya, and you, you know initially imagining that they would travel across to Europe, but then stayed. He and then in um, in February of two thousand eleven, I think he ended up in a first in a refugee camp and then in in Denmark. Um, but that novel is so much about the the sort of beautiful portraits of people in these terrible circumstances. So I, I was imagining it as, so the portrait that he paints of being on this, uh, a Zodiac and crossing the Mediterranean is also just as harrowing, but it's, it's like funny and a bit slapstick. And, you know, they, they, they think they see uh, Lampedusa, but actually, no, it's just a big ship and they throw everything overboard so they won't be caught. And then, nope, it was just a ship. They get drunk, they, they go swimming, right, right? and then when the Coastal Guard comes to get them, they're like, argue with them because they don't believe them that they're Italians and they like only want to be taken. But I, that was the scene where I was right. like, you've got to be kidding me. Like your boat is sinking and they're like, we will come <laughs> on board unless you guarantee that you're taking us to Italy. And it's all like, yeah, they're like no Malta, no Malta. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, respect, man. Right, right. And uh, so it is absolutely never this sort of maudlin tale about the emigrant. 
Not that African Titanics is. African Titanics is extremely moving and specific and individual and psychological. This is this is um, ridiculous, and the the migrant is never um, sort of this noble person who's coming because they're leaving their home, you know. But of course, they're they're people all the same who have the same right to go do crimes in other countries. Come on. <laughs> well, I mean, but I think that's what's. Uh, that's what's interesting. I mean, one of the many things that's interesting about the man who saw the sun is that he takes the risk of making his main characters unsympathetic and of, yeah. and he's not, he, he doesn't hesitate to show them be, like basically engaging in like antisocial and criminal behavior, which you know, you might hesitate to sort of write a book that portrays refugees and migrants that way because of like other considerations. But we've talked about how tiresome it is for 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 even writers, you know, Syrian writers or others from countries where so many people have emigrated to feel boxed into only portraying that experience in in one particular sympathetic way. Um, and uh, and Hamdi Abugalayo certainly doesn't particularly um at the same time that through the sheer like just the the voice of the story you you have sympathy for the for the narrator i mean you care about what's going to happen to them you're interested in what's going to happen to them right right um and right there's there was a passage that you were going to read that sort of is one of the few where one of the narrators kind of expresses some of maybe what he's feeling all along under this like churning action um, about, you know, being a, being abroad, being alone, uh, you know, sort of trying to figure it out every day from scratch. Right. And this is the Phantom Raider. Another time I got to know another guy. His name was Ashraf Bunasa from Tatuntu. He was a cocaine addict and snorted it a lot. Even though it was me who'd brought the bunch to the house, I was scared of them. I'd get up early. It didn't matter how late I'd stayed up. I'd get up early because I just had one wish during my life there. What with the squats, the fear, and the drugs, I hoped and I prayed and I begged the Lord, before I die, please let me sleep one night without fear. I'd get high on a couple of joints and I'd sit down on my own and cry over how my life was. It has to be this way. It's no use trying to live any other way. This is the only way I know how to live. I'd have died if I'd have come to this country to be a respectable type and lived off the churches and hadn't done anything wrong. I'd have died. I know lots of Egyptians who haven't done a thing wrong from the moment they arrived. The moment they wake in the morning, they have breakfast at the church and they have lunch at the church and they get their clothes from the church. A life not fit for a dog. I can't live like that. Mohibu Musa, who was a daredevil in Egypt and managed to get by even if he had to steal, wasn't the type to live like that. So I got into drugs and went for it. I'd sit on my own and smoke a couple of joints and look at the sky and cry. I cried because I was scared my goods would get stolen. I was scared the police would pop up out of nowhere and find goods on me and I'd go to prison. I was scared some Moroccans or Tunisians would attack me with cleavers and knives and take everything I had, 20 or 30 or to go. What are you going to do against them? Right behind where you're staying, there's a waste ground where there's everybody, Moroccans, Africans, Albanians, Romanians, God knows who else. And from the day we threw the Romanians out of the place we're living in, other people had their eye on it. A whole villa and great looking. We were scared we didn't go in by the station, so scared we didn't go in by the station door. 
Instead, we'd opened the outside door, the one that gave out straight to the street. I'd smoke a couple of joints and sit alone and feel like, I don't know, like you want to go home, but you can't. You haven't made any money. Everything you get is spent on drugs and you haven't sent anything back to your family so you can't go back there so that you can go back there. Go back to what? And anyway, time's up. You're older now. What are you going to do there? So you go on living in this wasteland, always on edge, on edge, on edge about everything, a strange land and no one to get your back. Yeah, there's a point at which, right, there's a point at which he says, yeah, the one of the terrible things is getting killed there and nobody to take revenge for you. (laughs) Which, which, yeah, which is specific, which is, yeah, what would, I mean, that is one of the very few points in the book where that narrator kind of, you know, lets down his guard or doesn't just keep, you know, talking about events and, you know, stratagems and, ups and downs. Um, and, and maybe because of that, I found that very, very moving, that point of admission of, of vulnerability. Right. And even the, um, you know, not to spoil it, but he does, I think it, you, they tell us quite early on, but he does go back. Um, they both end up back in Egypt, but, uh, you know, it's very much this sort of whole narrative of the rise and fall of the Saad Sheen who also rise and fall because the leader himself Gaddafi rose and fell. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, parts of it, there's not much rise. Like, (laughs) I mean, it's not like they build an empire and then it collapses. You know, one of them, you know, the story where he goes to he goes to Libya, he opens a workshop that produces very bad quality cement blocks and makes his real money off of making moonshine. Um. Uh, right. But that's kind of what I love about it. You know, you the rise and fall of the Sajin, like the rise and fall of the Roman Empire. But yes, it's a pretty shitty empire. Anyway, I liked this book a lot. I thought it was very, I was, um, uh, I, I mean, as much as, you know, like, like a lot of, like a lot of, 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 of writing that we're seeing these days, like it does not have a very structured plot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's basically all carried on this, like, you know, voice that approximates, you know, the storytelling orality. And it has this kind of abrupt ending. You know, there's no, the plot doesn't get massaged much into place. Like, there's there's not a lot of structure. There's just this kind of flow. Um, but Right. It, I imagine it like, you know, hitting record on the uh, the storyteller in the, in the coffee shop and then just hitting stop at the end. And that's the novel. Right. Um, he even starts it by referring to Osama Dinosaurus, uh, my beloved dog, my old dog, um, with, without really, <laughs> there's no explanation about who this Osama is. He's a, you know, I, I guess the two of them were friends. I imagine, you know, they must have run in the same circles. I didn't, I, I, uh, unlike you, I didn't, I didn't know Hamdi, but, um, but without, you know, without sort of, it, it doesn't um, make a lot of effort to, yeah, to, to make a tight plot to, um, to re-edit the book afterwards. I just imagine it as a verbal performance. And, and some of them may, I think, maybe, I'm, that's not to say that that's not a purposeful choice, because right. I think, you know, like, this is a different, uh, 
considerably different style than his previous book, which is these quite concentrated short stories um, that that each of one is a, a sort of contained vignette, at least. Like again, they 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 there's not a strong overall narrative arc, but but it's a quite different style. Um, so I think this is this is a choice. Um, but I, I, I found it quite, I mean, just, you know, you're, it like really immerses you in these worlds, uh, Mm -hmm. which are sort of, uh, fascinating. And like I said, like super, uh, super disturbing to me, (laughs) I mean, but that's what makes them fascinating. Uh, just, uh, uh, that they're slightly terrifying. Um, and, and it has, and it has humor, uh, and, uh, yeah, I, I think it's Yeah, and I, I just think of it. So he de- he dedicates it to <clears throat> Suleiman al-Fahta, who he says is a great the great Kuwaiti writer and and historian. Um and and I guess maybe that is part of what he, although he does, you know, sort of very self-consciously begin it with a lot of um history of the um these Bedouin communities in in Egypt from the time of the Romans on on through the contemporary era, um, that I imagine it as as this kind of transgressive history of people living between between borders and uh, unsettled and moving uh, constantly looking for something. Yeah, I like that transgressive history because you do feel like you're getting, you know. Uh, you're getting a, a a history, a part of the history of that region of of those communities that maybe isn't recorded anywhere but in literature and art. And he mentions music and poetry, and um, and it's a kind of it's a kind of fascinating uh, record too of like a particular time and atmosphere. Um, right. And not necessarily all high poetry and high music either. You know, there's sort of poetic and musical riffs made off the green book in order to appeal to Gaddafi, but it's this, I, I, yeah, I found it to be this great sort of cultural history uh, of a moment, even though it is also fictional. Mm. Yeah. Well, should we talk a little bit about um, the other book that uh, we also read this past weekend? Yes, yes. Uh, we should say that. So, <laughs> so this past weekend, you finished an issue of ALQ. I don't know how many all-nighters you just pulled to get that together. Right, me and poor Hassan <laughs> going through the pages and the page proofs. And this is your issue on the theme is mirrors, right? Yes, it is the thirteenth issue. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Which uh, lucky thirteen, I like to think. Um, and oh, it is, I'm yes, a huge believer in lucky thirteen. Excellent. Mm. Um, and yes, the theme is mirrors, and uh, from starting with how Al has described mirrors and sort of his philosophy of mirrors uh, through Andalusian mirrors and contemporary and. I guess one of the really one of the things that struck me again and again was the different ways in which male writers and women writers in all the submissions, not just in what we included, uh, portrayed mirrors. Men as associating mirrors more with memory and nostalgia and looking back, and women m- much more with feeling sort of 
the mirror constantly around them and distorting their image and, uh, and the mirror sort of, you know, constantly telling them who they need to be now presenting a sort of an idealized version. Um, so, and this issue will be out, um, when? Before this uh, episode airs. <laughs> okay. So by the time you hear about this, the issue right. will be you available. Okay. Right. Yes. And and you should say where exactly. Right. You can always buy it at arablit.gumroad.com or you can just go to Arablit uh, website and, and find it there. But um, you don't seem loopy at all for someone who I know has gotten very little sleep and spent hours and hours and hours looking at text and, and images for the last couple of days. Um, and then on top of that, we had a slight rescheduling thing. And so we actually uh, read this book, both of us, I think, like very, very quickly in the last couple of days. So was, I think we're, we're coming off of it quite fresh, right? Yes. Yeah. I, and I actually needed to read this book, The Rise and Fall of Sajreen, uh, a second time to feel certain which, which parts were in the voices of the, um, the narrator and which voice parts were the voices in the Phantom Raider. And then I, um, I had to do some extra research about this, who the Sajreen were and, um, about these communities in Egypt that are of supposedly of, of Libyan origin or really are, you know, came from the, the Maghreb at some point. Um, I interesting, like this. Sorry, yeah, sorry in, go ahead. Interestingly, I, I saw um, a clip from Leila Al-Amr's presentation, I think at Lancaster Lit Fest, um, in which she says, she, you know, she explains why she never glosses the Arabic for she writes in English, but she explains why she never glosses the Arabic for uh, English language readers. She says, um, she, you know, we always talk about literature as you know bringing the um, you know the the Arab world to the English language reader, and you know she said, why, why doesn't the English language reader also need to come to you know the come to us in in some in some instances, you know at least somewhat part of the way. I do feel that in this particular novel, you need, do need to come to the novel in, in some cases. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, I read for a couple of pages of Saad Sheen's before, and I, you know, and I know the Arabic alphabet before it clicked. You know how that happens? <laughs> like when you see it, you see a right, word and every word trans in, right. in English. And I was just kept being like, okay, the sad shins. All right. Like this, you know, and then finally, <laughs> ah, okay. Okay. I knew it and was I, a sad sheen, but it was a long time before I realized that meant a Sahra al-Sharqiya, you know, because he says, saw the sad sheen, the people of the Eastern desert. And I, you know, I, I, I didn't put two plus two together and get four, sadly. I know me neither, not right away. And I, when I think, and I think, I think, I mean, so what, what Laila Al-Amr was talking about is that you wouldn't put a footnote or in parentheses or try and translate that somehow into English that, 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 you know, that when she's saying you wouldn't, don't gloss it into English, that you leave it, um, as right. is. And, and also in the book, there's a, there's, I enjoyed very much once the, the, the part that's set in Italy, there's Italian words that have been Arabized and are then right. rendered in English. Yeah. Yeah. So yes. at one point he's talking about balats, balats this, balats this. And again, it takes a while. And then you're like, ah, palazzo. 
Like it's building in Italian, but then made with a B because of Arabic and then come into English. I, I mean, I find these things delightful, actually. And I think it's fine if there's no footnote, because if you don't get it, if you don't know exactly where that word's, you understand from the context that it's the name of a place. Right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Right. And if, if, and uh, as Layla, I think said, if, and then if you have to Google it, that won't kill you either. Yeah, no, of course. Of course. I mean, I think you can also go too far the other way where you purposely put words. If you're writing sure, in English, sure. a story that's set abroad and you're sort of like purposely inserting kind of foreign words to yeah, give yeah. No. a texture <laughs> of foreignness to the story where you're like, well, wait a moment. Like it's written in English. Why, why, in the, why, why are people so, sort of, why are you interspersing kind of foreign words in here? It's just to make it sound a little foreign. That can happen too. So right, it has absolutely. to be intentional. Right, um, right. right. Yeah, I just was thinking that this was a text that you do need to like make a little bit of effort to to insert yourself into and, and figure out what's going on. But I think that there are rewards to it. And actually, I really enjoyed reading Thomas Huskin's The Practice and Culture of Smuggling in the Borderland of Egypt and Libya to kind of understand the history <laughs> of the Saad Sheen, which he transliterates literally as S-A-D, Saad, Saad Sheen. The so. Saad Shins. It's like, <laughs> it's like the worst gang name ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, we'll link to that anthropology paper. Um, okay. wait, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk a little bit about sl- sl- slipping um, because that's the other book that I read this weekend and had been meaning to read for a very long time. Um, so these are both, I think, on on our list. And I think you got to slip in quite a while ago. And um, I finally got the impetus to, to read it. It's been like very, I thought, well-received. Um, this is Mohammed Khair's novel and translated by Robin Moger. Uh, and um, I'll try and give a quick synopsis kind of of the content of the book, which is difficult because the book has a very kind of evanescent plot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's the narrator is a, is a young Egyptian man who lives in maybe Alexandria rather than Cairo, I think, and works at a magazine and uh, is sort of given this assignment that involves going to various kind of strange locations with this other older man called Bahar who has come back to Egypt and is doing some sort of project on these at these sites. And so the young magazine writer is accompanying him. And that just allows them to kind of keep visiting these slightly strange and surreal places, um, which include like a spot in the Nile where when the, the tide of the river gets so low that it looks like people are walking on water because there's only like a few inches of of water or a building that's like shaking day and night with the sound of this huge nearby construction or this village that's empty because the entire village got up and emigrated all together one night. Um, And these stories, and then there's other stories. So it keeps sort of jumping from story to story. And then eventually the stories have like little points of connection Um, but they're not, you know, there's not, it's, it's very sort of lots of little diversions. And, uh, I wouldn't say that there's like a clear narrative arc. There's also a love story. There's a, there's a woman that he keeps describing a woman that he's loved and seemingly lost. 
uh, and perhaps by the end of the book recovered. Um, so it's, a, it's, it's, it's really a, a book that's a lot about the creation of a particular atmosphere. Right. And a lot about its musical and sonic landscapes as well, I think. Yeah. Yeah. The, the description, for example, of, of living in this building that like vibrates constantly to the sound of a huge construction site next door is like, for example, very, very well done. Um, there's, there are these, these beautiful kind of descriptions, these, these sort of surreal places and scenes that stay with you. Um, the, and I mean, it's a completely different kind of book though, stylistically in terms of the voice, you know, it's very melancholy. It's a bit intellectual. Like, uh, it's, uh, it kind of wanders around in circles instead of having this like huge forward thrust, mm, right. Of the, right, right. Of the Goliath book. I mean, they're really like, you would normally not compare them. I don't think it's just that since I just read them both, then you can't <laughs> help it. Like they're in your right. mind at the same time. Um, and so you, 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 you think of them, but the one point they have in common actually is that slipping also deals to a considerable degree with the, with the experience of emigrating because there's both this scene of this village that decides that if they're going to emigrate, they're all going to emigrate together and they get like a collective bargain price from the smuggler and they <laughs> all go to the ocean one night after surreptitiously kind of selling everything and they disappear and you never find out if they made it or not. Um, that's kind of left hanging. Mm -hmm. And then the, the character, this older man called Bahar, as he tells his story to the younger narrator, it turns out that he's someone who emigrated as a young man and spent most of his life abroad and has just come back. Um, and, um, there's a passage I could read where he sort of like talks about this experience. Um, it sort of seems like the catalyzing thing that made him decide to emigrate was being arrested at a political protest when he was young. And so there's this passage where he describes his parents coming to pick him up at the jail and then how... At the same time, it was being in jail that had made him decide to like always stay on the move and to to leave the country, but also to like never settle anywhere. So mm. maybe I'll read this. Yeah, please um, do. Then I saw my parents. My father was talking to a conscript by the gate, wearing an expression I'd never seen on him or anyone else before. An extraordinary blend of weariness, rage, worry, and humiliation. And I wished I could shrink where I sat, grow smaller and smaller until I disappeared into one of the tiny holes the ants had opened in the walls. Then all of a sudden, there was my mother, kissing the conscript's hand. Their voices didn't reach me where I sat. I watched the scene play out silently. My mother's body, rarely seen outside our house, stooped in the reeking yard to kiss the hand of a young conscript who could do nothing in any case, not for her and not for me. My mother abasing herself without realizing that she had no hope of getting anything in return. I watched my father step back and stare at her. His back was turned to me, but I could picture the shock on his face. It was in that moment that I understood, safe. If you rebel against fate... 
if you insist on being master of what you call your destiny, the insolence, then life itself might come out and force your mother to her knees. That day, life chose to let me go, though my release had nothing to do with my mother's kiss. They left us in the yard past noon, then undid our cuffs and made us sign papers, and we were allowed to leave. As I signed my name to testimony I had never spoken, the officer said with a smile that we'd meet again soon. Since that day, I've made a habit of keeping that little bag packed. When I still lived at home, I kept it under the bed, a secret from my mother. I stood by the front door after I moved. Sorry, it stood by the front door after I moved. You would know my home, or to be precise, the place where I was staying, by a small bag packed and ready by the door. Right. Yeah, that's uh, that's a very sort of uh, also lovely peripatetic, but a very different sort of um, peripatetic than than in Hamdi Abu Ghalayl's novel. And it ascribes, I would say, a, I mean, more explicitly in a way, a motivation to the decision to be, to leave home, to be, to not settle down, to emigrate, right? I mean, it, it draws this pretty explicit line between not being master of your fate and facing this, these injustice, you know, it's unjust. He's arrested for, for protesting. He's, he's, right. he's humiliated for no reason. His, uh, and this decision to, to leave, um, where none right, of that it's much, is it's much more reflective. Yeah, no, it, it reminds me much more, more of kind of, political a bit, right? You know. Right, reminds me much more of Amrozet or Haizem um, al-Wardani. Uh, a, a very different sort of. Both of these feel like um, very Egyptian books to me, um, but in sort of different threads of um, of Egyptian literature. Hamdi much yeah. more like Khairi Shalabi or, um, uh, uh, you know, lots of <laughs> of the like sort of outrageous drug stories. Um, right. Or it, something like, um, I don't know, maybe even a bit, uh, not, the, not the drug story, but the sort of like collective voice, the neighborhood thing I was thinking about, like Ibrahim Aslan's Malik Al-Hazin, Kit right, Kat, yeah. you know, um, also this great tradition of like humor and making light of very serious things. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I think even also that book, um, Women of Quarantina, you know, which is a yes, kind of yes, yes, epic it crime me a lot story. Latouchi's novel, yes. Yeah, whereas like you said, slipping is, 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 in, is in another kind of genre that's, that's very strong right now, which is more of a kind of... Uh, there's a sort of like it's it's on the edge between personal essay and fiction and almost mm. like philosophizing. Uh, you know, it's it's almost metaphysical in its concerns, like what's real and what's not, and what do we experience and what do we not, and uh, you know, and and the tone is is more about. I mean, I think that the the two tones are always there in Egyptian literature and Egyptian life, right? Like. Right. I mean, in every, you know, humor is so often 
uh, uh, just an, another way of dealing with with loss, uh, with with difficulty, you know, right. um, and uh, and so they're not maybe as far apart uh, as they as they seem, but certainly the the effect and the mood is very different. Right. Yeah. No. I mean. E- e- yeah. Even where. Um, yeah. The the movement is is similar, uh, or the the issues are similar. Yeah. The mood is the mood is very different. But they both feel um, exceptionally Egyptian to me, just in different in different mm. ways. Yeah. Slipping has almost this quality of like you're not sure if it's a dream or it's real. Like it's very untethered from. The narrator could have dreamt the whole thing up, and that kind of comes up multiple times in the story. Uh, there are these elements, you know, the woman he loves sort of can reproduce any sound. You know, there's these really yes. magical elements right. to the story, kind of. Although then he slips in, well, she does sound effects for animated movies. So then you're sort of like, oh, there is, we haven't completely moved out of the realm of real and he actually does that really cleverly multiple times where there's a scene for example you know they see someone walk across a river mm, right you think oh i'm in the realm of the miraculous the completely magical realism and then he tells you what's well, because the tide is low at this one time of the year and so people take this as a shortcut and it looks like they're walking across water and it's just like five inches of water right and so he recreates the effect you would have of thinking something was unbelievable and you had no explanation for it and then finding it. Um, and that's done very well, um, as is the kind of like tenuous connections that he keeps making between the different stories. I think it's quite hard to sort of plot a book like this that seems plotless or almost plotless, but isn't. I mean, there are, there is a pattern. Mm-hmm. There is a narrative pattern, right? It's just that you don't, you can't, it takes a while to identify it. You know, they're both sort of narratives that resist a little bit being summed up. You know what I right. mean? Or being... I think they, yeah, neither one of them gives you an answer. Are, are we supposed to be pleased at the end of the novel? Are are, are we supposed to be sad for him? Are, oh, he doesn't tell us how we're supposed to feel about it. Um, I, I don't think it's positioned in such a way that that were made to look in a particular direction. We can decide for ourselves what we think about what the story means. Yeah. Well, and people should, you should check out both of these books. They're really, they're really quite worthwhile. Um, And I think with that, we're going to close out for this week. Yes. Thank you so much for talking with me about these books. Ah, pleasure as always. Um, and also don't forget to check out the new issue of Arab Lit Quarterly. Okay. Bye everybody. Bye.